How to Win the Lottery, Season 3 bonus episode, Adam Levin interview. It is Levin, right? I feel like I should have said that before we started the episode. Yeah, no, that's remarkable. No one ever gets it. I say your name like four different ways, most of them wrong, and Bob's like, no, it's it's Levin. So, Adam Levin, welcome. Thank you, thank you. Glad to be here. I think you call that the Chicago way in the introduction. Is that um, Levin's Chicago way of pronouncing it? It is. It's the okay. Chicago way. Yeah, it, it's it's the only even like outside of Chicago, like if you go to like Wisconsin or something um, like the rest of the Midwest, I think they say Levin like they do on the East Coast. But in Chicago, it's across the board. It's 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 Levin, you know, like when when someone has an E at the end, like I've heard yeah. in Chicago, people call say Levine, which is which which sounds totally off to me because oh. it's usually Levine. But but. That's not as common. Like, I, it's, it's not usual. But it, but when I was a kid, I was like, is it Levine or Levine? I don't know. But it doesn't really matter to me as long as you don't say Levine. How do you feel about being a guy whose name is probably, like, consistently fucked up Google-wise from, from the much more famous Adam Levine? Yeah, no, I'm, I, you know, I mean, it's understandable. Like, we, you know, we both, you know, not only have similar names, but we have, like, we're similarly kind of, like, built. Like, we're both, like, real, like, sort of diesel and tattooed. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and I'm, I'm, I'm a little prettier than him. Um, yeah. And my songs are better, but like, that's okay. But he's a better writer. He's a better, he's, yeah. I mean, that's, that's sort of what I'm getting at. I mean, like as a lyricist, <laughs> I can't remember any of the lyrics right now, but they're, they're amazing. Yeah. I've, I mean, I have a similar, you know, uh, I, I get to hide behind my name on Google cause I, I also have a name of a very famous person. So I know you're Bobby Fisher. I mean, you know, more justifiably famous than Adam Levine. Not that he isn't a great writer, but like, you know, that guy, you know, <laughs> yeah, good at the chess, best at anything, you know, yeah. We had a conversation beforehand before we were recording about the spelling of the word fucking in your, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in your work, both um, the instructions and and bubblegum and and now Mount Chicago, I first read the instructions as part of the Rumpus Book Club. So I think I, I think I got it ah, like a cool. month before everybody else. And nice. like an interesting thing about that was we had like an email chat going for the whole month with with the entire mm-hmm. book club. And something that I noticed as that mm-hmm. as we kept reading that book was that people's spelling and the words that they were using. And like they started uh, writing, you know, the equal sign in between things. They started ah, using nice. the, 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 the TCH uh, uh, sound. Um, yeah. And they started spelling fucking F-U-C-K-E-N instead of fucking. And something <laughs> something that like I, I uh, when reading it, you get to that middle section where I think it's Emmanuel Liebman is writing. And he's talking about how when people are around Gurian or for, for a significant amount of time, they start to become more like him and start to talk mm. more like him and act more like him. And that always felt like it was magic to me. Like it felt like, it felt like you were doing voodoo to us good, and, good. And, and changing the way that we were speaking. And then I, and this, 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 this is a really long question for what sure. might be I a like simple answer. Yeah. And yeah. then I'm reading Mount the Chicago. Yes. Yeah. I'm reading Mount Chicago. And my question is, were you doing a behaviorism on us that whole time? <laughs> um, you know, not no, no. I mean, like I like I thought that like a couple of the things, like the spelling of fucking, I think is is a more logical way to spell it. It, it because if you're not going to spell out fucking, which I think there's a decent reason not to. I mean, it's arguable. Uh, I don't like the apostrophe, and there is like a. Sometimes it sounds a little more like fucking <laughs> than fucking. Mm-hmm. Sure. But the equal sign, 
I was I I don't know. I was happy about the equal sign. I'm not sure I invented that. I can't think who else did, but I, I don't I don't want to take credit for uh, for for coming up with that. Um, but I definitely will take credit for having used it quite a lot, and and I think it's uh, I like it. It got in in the instructions. I really wanted to sort of like in a kind of opposite way to bubblegum. I wanted to bury as much of the rhetorical language as possible, and an equal sign is an easier mm-hmm. is an easy way to do that. And I think that it functioned pretty well. And I would use it again, except then it's like, then it becomes like a gimmicky thing, but I kind of, you know, it would be great if the world started using the equal sign that way, I feel like, and then I could start using it again. It would make my life easier. But, well, Slipknot um, has the famous song yeah. "People Equal Shit," so like, there's you got someone. <laughs> oh, it was probably the Slipknot influence. Yeah, like mm-hmm. when I wrote the instructions, I did wear a mask most of the time. Yeah. So it was like you know, I was definitely thinking a lot about Slipknot, um, and you know what it would be like if Adam Levine wrote their lyrics. <laughs> um, and and I just thought you know he'd probably yeah he'd probably do more equal signs and he would spell it fucking with an e, no possible. Yeah. All right. Shout out Slipknot and Adam Levine. Actually, speaking of music, one thing that I think is true of both the instructions and Mount Chicago, I have not read the other books, the other things you've written, so I apologize. And if you want to hang up now, that's totally fine. I understand. Yeah, Jesus, uh, man. Come on. But I, I only read the instructions. I had another friend who I was like, you, you should read the instructions. He's like, well, give me a reason why. And I was like, because he's like, it's long. It's, I know it's, a, it's kind of a hard sell. I'm like, well, it's so good that I started reading it as soon as I finished. I started rereading it as soon as I finished. He's like, oh, okay. That's a good uh, answer. I'm like, and we're talking to Adam Levine. On Sunday, so you should listen to that too. So one more sale in your nice. corner. You're welcome. But <laughs> thank you, thank you. One uh, one thing that I noticed across both books that I think you know from the music thing is that you we talked about this yesterday on a Mount Chicago episode. You blend in pop culture, and the characters in your books talk about pop culture in a way that feels very natural, like you're kind of hanging out with them. Mm. How much of the mm. pop culture in in the works that you're including is like your own tastes, and how much is it just like you ascribing? You know, I want this person to be cool, so he's going to like DJ Shadow and Radiohead or whatever. Well, I mean, in Mount Chicago, uh, uh, you know, versus like, no, I think both of them. I mean, like, you know, like in so like in the instructions, like I remember there's uh, there's like, you know, Vincey makes mixes. And I think I would pretty much like those mixes. And then like Gorian's dad has this like 70s and early 80s punk mix. And I'm into that stuff. Kind of, and I, I think at the time I was really into it. Um, I, you know, you you never don't, you never aren't into the Clash, but you know, like Stiff Little Fingers, maybe a little too much Stiff Little Fingers for a little while. But yeah, and then and then I think in Mount Chicago, the music uh, was yeah, it's always stuff that that not always. I don't want to say always. I'm trying because I'm sure there's like some you know, maybe I don't. Uh, there's probably something pretty shitty that I make fun of in there. But like most of the music I like, <laughs> like like I let like. Like the bands that are um, like that concert, I think would be really cool. It would be yeah. cooler if Fugazi would show up, but like sure. that—that's a pretty that that would have been a great concert for me at a certain age. You know, later I think there's like a reference to like Charlie XCX and Sky Ferrara, and like I actually think Charlie XCX is kind of a genius. Um, and Sky Ferrara, I just, I just I saw her in a concert recently. She's she's awesome. Yeah, she's like she's an amazing songwriter, like like and producer. Like she she's just she's she's a uh, the first, the first stuff I heard by her, that song, uh, it was that song "Nuclear Seasons." I think that was mm-hmm. a long time ago now. And like the first time I heard that, I actually was like stirred in a like I feel like I, it's nineteen eighty five way. 
And like, like there was something about the quality of the sound of the synths on that song that that and it was very deliberate obviously and this like even the theme of the song is very 80s and like like comparing you know like love to nuclear war or whatever like it was like it it, it really it really worked me up and i felt like it was an improvement on the stuff i liked when i was like six years old you know and that was that was amazing i think she's i think she's brilliant I, I feel i feel incredibly whack right now i don't know who that person is Char- charlie xcx Charlie XCX. Yeah. I mean, like if you go to like Spotify or something, you know, actually, like I actually looked at this recently, like her sort of top songs on Spotify aren't necessarily like her best songs. Um, mm-hmm. Some of them are like she has a lot of really good singles. You would probably know she was she was featured on Icona Pops. I love it. Like, I don't know. That's, that, yes. that, that might not be where you know her from, but that was kind of like her. Yeah. But she's got like because I saw her at Primavera. Like there's a big music festival in Spain when I was over there and she was okay. I saw her put on this amazing show and she just like uh, has a very loyal family. So I didn't really know a ton of her music, but she still put on a very fun, very good, very energetic show. And like, yeah, there's more songs. Like it's the kind of thing like we're enough with pop music. Like you would know stuff, even if you don't know by name, you would mm-hmm. know her songs. if you heard yeah. a mix of it yeah. or whatever? Okay. Yeah. She's, she's, she's definitely affected things like sort of like in a pretty, pretty big way. And I don't know, you know, I don't pay attention to this stuff as much. I'm old. Like, but it seems to me like a lot of stuff, like a, a lot of pop music changed sound since her and kind of because of her. Like, I think like yeah. her and, and MIA sort of like there was something happening. It's, it's sort of Santa Gold, too. They, they sort of disappeared. And MIA, I, I feel like is, is um, has a couple of great songs. But but like, did you did you I think, think that like, MIA is a born again Christian? Like she just no. <laughs> she just went and did it. She's a born again Christian now. That's I mean, right bizarre, on. man. I mean, maybe it's not bizarre. I don't know. I don't know what you know, but but yeah, like I, I don't know. I like that. Like the 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 sort of producers in pop music who who move stuff along. Like I think are the they're they're kind of they're always really fascinating to me. I think largely because when I was like a teenager and and I thought I was going to play music, which I had zero talent for. Yeah. I so denied the importance of production because production, like like high production stuff, is like really unpunk rock. But at the same time, it was like I loved the Beatles and I loved like everything that Phil Spector produced, like in the sixties. Mm-hmm. That probably informs the way I, I listen to music more than just about anything. So so I think now I, I get a bigger appreciation for sort of the, these these producer types, the, just the people and sound engineers, like the people who are making this stuff sound the way it sounds. Do you think that that informs the way that you write? Mm. I think maybe to some degree in that, like, there's like, there's, there's, you know, it's a loose metaphor, like any time, like, that any art, like starts um, being compared to music specifically, mm-hmm. I always feel like there's like some just there's too much gooey, like, abstraction going on. But but sure. in a way, I think that the the production of 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 a pop song, if like we reduce it to just like an American pop song. Not even necessarily American, because like, you, you, like, the, but, but a pop song that the production is maybe something close to uh, a writer's style rather than their content or their structure. Um, but it's really, it's I say close. It's 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 a stretch, man. It's like I yeah, like I said, music metaphors. I don't know, but I certainly like listen to a lot of music. I never listen to music when I write, but I go for angry walks and listen to music all the time <laughs> so it probably changes you know i i mean i know in fact it changes my mood and yeah sure. and it's really not content based it's really like you know 
how fast it is or how loud it is, um, that sort of thing. That's that's what's going to mess with me the most. There's also a lot in in all these books. Like I feel like um, like when when I read your books, I feel like a person that has similar taste as you because you you do reference fairly frequently like the books that these characters are reading or that they love mm-hmm. and the same people keep coming up right it's philip roth it's don yeah. delillo it's cormac mccarthy delilio yes yeah don delilio delilio <laughs> don delilio <laughs> i almost spelled that one different i thought it was too much but... <laughs> because it was actually it sounded like donda oh sure the yeah. pause was was after it was like it was like donda lilio but anyway is that Connie's mom <laughs> Is is Connie the son of Don Delilio? <laughs> yes, yes, in fact, yes. Wow. Um, but I'm sorry, I interrupted you. What, what, what were you saying? No, I j- just like I, I feel like um, I don't know when when I'm reading it. I feel like le- there is like a degree of uh, decoding it and stuff. And I'm like, okay, so Levin likes Roth. He likes Delillo. He likes all all these people. There is a person that that I when I was reading the instructions, I thought. In my head, I was like, this is a shadow influence that I don't think other people are picking up on. And then I think you name drop him in, in Mount Chicago. Uh, are you a James Elroy fan? Oh, yeah, man. I mean, like, especially American Tabloid is is That's like is just massive for me. That's that is yeah, yeah. Uh, I keep I actually almost, you know, it's funny we were talking about like, so I'm, I'm in Paris right now. And so like our the, the books we have here um, in English are limited and somewhat redundant with what we have at home. And it was actually I'm reading I'm rereading um, End Zone right now, which is one okay. of my favorite Delillos that I haven't read in a long time. But it was between that and American Tabloid, and I basically chose the Delillo because the edition is nicer, and the American Tabloid is sort of like this beat to shit, um, weird British one, I guess. It's, I I'm going to give Bob it. either a compliment or uh, compare him to you or something. But like the, the sort of the reason this podcast began is because like two or three years ago, uh, mm-hmm. he's he. I always wanted to read more than I did, but I never really mm-hmm. knew where to go because, like, I just knew the authors I knew, and I didn't really like. I, it's not like books were like in my realm. Like, I'm much more of a movie and TV guy, but I knew that Bob taught literature, and he's. I'm like, can you put together a list of things for me to read? He's like, yeah. So he put together this like amazing list, and like all these things that you're mentioning, including the instructions and everything. But like, Enzone was on there, American Tabloid was on there, uh, the yeah. instructions was on there, and then there was another one that we just mentioned. But like all these things. The compliment of pay that he knows is that, like, they're all things that I love. Like, you pick things that I, I knew I would love, but it's also, like, this, you know, you, you find your favorite band and your favorite band's favorite bands or whatever. And so to hear you talk about these other things that you love, it's just, like, it's all this, like, mm. great lineage. And, like, I love the way that it all shapes and influences. So it's cool to know both, like, the behind the scenes and in front of the scenes. I don't know what exactly what I'm saying, <laughs> but I'm just thinking it's very cool to hear that, like, the things that we've read that we really like from you you were also influenced by these other things that I also liked. And so, you know, later we'll talk sure. about other, you know, books that you like or whatever, but I just think it's cool mm-hmm. to see like the way that you're shaped by the same things that, you know, we've talked about on this podcast or we will or whatever. So just, it's not really a question. It's just like a, a, a long comment. That makes to me Bob. happy too. Yeah. 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 No. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. I, I, I th- thanks Bob. I mean, no, like really it's, it, it's like, because one of the things when you're writing a book, it's a like sort of a cliche thing to say, but it, but I think it's really true. It's like, you know, your book is like, whether you know it or not, at first, like it, you are, you start thinking of it, or I do, I shouldn't say you or one even, but I, you know, you start, start thinking of it as like in conversation with, with other books. And they're usually, you know, hopefully they're books you love, you know, unless you're you know, trying to shit all over something. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, like, but, but that's the thing is like, I, 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 that, that makes me really happy. That, that's a, that's, that's a, that's a wonderful thing to hear. 
I want to talk. So you, you mentioned a little bit ago that you you grew up that you wanted to be a musician, but you didn't have the talent. And I'm wondering, like, we talk a lot, and especially I think a lot of the conversation in our Mount Chicago episode was framed around the author as narrator or author as face character. Because you, mm. even though you say in the introduction this is not autobiographical, it's like, well, by you saying that, it kind of makes it sort of autobiographical. And like, you drop it in the middle, and be like, hey, here's pictures of me when I was younger and now, and like these might be what the characters <laughs> kind of look like. So I'm wondering, you know, you you wanted to be a musician, but like how much of writing Gladman or After were writing either versions of you or multiverse versions of you to use the uh, the parlance of today's cinema landscape? Like, are these just characters that like you you drew inspiration from yourself or these like versions of you that you either wished you could be? Maybe not. Gladman's a weird one to wish you would be. It's like, hey, my entire, Mm -hmm. by the way, spoilers for these books. Uh, (laughs) I mean, it's like the first like ten pages or whatever. But like everyone yeah, yeah, yeah. dies. But like, how much of these characters are other versions of you, or just like, are you drawing inspiration from yourself, or like, how does that all work? I mean, you know, if I knew how it worked, I'd be, you know, I'd write one of those craft books that tells you how to, you know, that's not really a craft book that tells you you can be a famous novelist and this is how you make sure. a million dollars. Um, but but I think the way it works for me is is that I and and, and talking to other writers, I think for them too, the ones I know at least is uh, that any character is some version of me. I mean, whether, you know, the character is named Adam Levin or Gladman or um, Apter or Sylvie Klein, you know, Fonda Jane Henry. Like, they're they're me putting, you know, imagining myself in the contexts in which um, those people live in their bodies and in their their lives and whatever informed their lives. And it's me sort of you know, looking through what I, what I construct to be there, them. Uh, and so their thoughts are what I imagine I would be thinking if I were them. Uh, so there's some core thing you can't get rid of when you're writing. I keep saying you, I'm such, I hate, I hate, I hate saying that, but, but, you know, just shorthand, I'm never talking for anybody else. And I'm also making half sure. of what I say up, by the way, you know, always, um, cause <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. None of us do. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no one's asking you to account for it, man. No, but 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 uh, <laughs> but, but but yeah, I I, I think that I, like I would say that that after and Gladman, um, and the Adam Levin, you know, narrator at the start of the book are roughly as fictional as any other character I've written. Um, that is that is a any as any protagonist, let's say, yeah. Because I mean, some sometimes I get a. You know, uh, maybe I'll just for for a laugh, I'll have some clown like there's a guy in like bubblegum named Chad Kyle, who's just a schmuck. I, I don't think I'm anything like Chad Kyle. Chad Kyle is just me judging someone, basically. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, but usually I'm not doing that. That's usually a bad thing to do unless it unless it's funny, which, you know, <laughs> like then then it's OK. Spe- speaking of people you're maybe judging, were you were you wronged by a basketballer in your middle school? Because we got Bam Slocum and Basketball Schwartzy who have the same initials and they both feel of a kind where it's like, although, I mean, we talked about this yesterday too. Well, like Bam Slocum's like a golden god and Basketball Schwartz yeah, just yeah. seems like a schmuck. Like they seem like yeah, yeah. cut from the same cloth, but like different life paths. Like, do, yeah. you, do we need to have like a mediation of you and some guy with the initials BS from your middle school that played basketball no, and wronged you no. in some way? No, there's no BS, but I certainly in junior high, and I think um, I think this is a product of uh, I, I, maybe it's maybe it's the same now. Maybe it's I don't know if it's regional. Um, certainly in the '80s in the suburbs in junior high school, the big team was the basketball team. So like mm-hmm. my junior high, which was a public junior high, 
like we had a basketball team and I think we had a track team. I was so not sports. I was like a burnout kid. There was no football team. Like the football, football was uh, football starts in high school. Um, I mean, I guess there's like, you know, little league football. I don't know what they call pop Warner. They call it in movies, yeah. which is not what it's called in the Midwest. I, if, if it even exists in Chicago, I don't know. Or in the suburbs, I don't know. Um, so I think it was more like, uh, that, that's, that's kind of more what it is. That's sort of what I trust is that, um, that I know what the sort of basketball crew is like. And there's like, you know, they have a different shape of, you know, physicality than, than a, than a football crew usually. <laughs> I mean, hopefully like, uh, so I think, you know, there's something, there's some level of image that goes with it. Like, but yeah, no, nothing against, uh, Okay. And, and nothing particularly against them. I definitely didn't like those kids at school. Like those were no, nobody those kids does. Unless you're one of them, nobody. Yeah, does. yeah, yeah. Well, you're also, you're also growing true up anymore, man. Yeah, go yeah, on. Uh, you're also growing up in 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 uh, Chicago during the uh, Jordan era, so I imagine that basketball kids are like they've got some ego to them because they it's it's like that's the center of the world. It's, I think maybe, maybe it's partly that it's probably, I'm sure it's, it's, it's got something to do with that, but I thought like, I didn't, I liked the bulls. Like I'm, I'm not, I've never been a big sports fan, but like, I, I like watching the bulls. Like I'm not like, uh, I, I think it's more that it was growing up, um, in like pretty much like in the, or next to the John Hughes suburbs, um, uh-huh. which were like, and so it really was like the, that was a when I was in junior high school, cause I don't know if like when I got to high school, kids started changing a bit, like Nirvana came around, like things were a bit different, but like in junior high, it did seem like what you see in like breakfast club or 16 candles or something that that actually was getting played out. And it was like, there were these like really hardcore differences between the kids who like were good at school, who got in fights who played basketball, uh, who were drinking, you know, like, like it was like, like there, there were these, there were these different groups that were pretty impenetrable, impenetrable. And, uh, and the basketballers were, were one of those, were, were one of those groups that I, that I found particularly douchey and got, gotten fights with a lot. So I don't know. I think, I think that's what it was, but I don't, I don't, blame it on basketball and I don't want to generalize out too far, but I think it's, you know, it's sort of, it's a quick thing. Uh, well, I think, I, I think the, the John Hughes stuff is really interesting to me because I found in your, in, in your writing, I think especially the instructions, but also some of the stuff in hot pink and that story, I forget the name of that. It w- was in the New Yorker for sure. Um, hmm. About like, correct me if I'm, if I'm uh, misquoting here, but it's like, like there's a bully and he's like pushing a kid and the kid because the kid makes a funny noise when whenever you push him right. Oh yeah 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 yeah. Kid that positive. Yeah, that was a story. Kid yeah. positive. Okay, so that yeah. the, um, bu- the bully being the narrator Adam Levin. <laughs> well, the, the, I, yeah, yeah. There, there does seem there does seem to be like a, a fascination with the psychology of bullies, right? Some of whom you make mm-hmm. into into sympathetic characters uh, as yeah. as like I think I think as we grow up we start realizing that bullies are actually people who were picked on themselves, et cetera, et cetera. But like, mm. I, I think that they're like, where does that fascination come from? Cause you have like Benji is uh, someone who is a bully, but not right. That That's like one of the yeah. questions that I have about that book. Cause I love that character, but it's yeah. like, yeah. if I were in high school, would I love that yeah. character? I might be afraid of that character, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, I think, you know, part of it was I was friends with some pretty rough kids and I was, I mm-hmm. was like at least an aspirationally rough kid. 
at, at, at that age in junior high. And, and, um, and I think that, uh, the idea of a bully, it's like, I didn't, I, I, I feel like I was probably as much of a bully as I was bullied. Like I didn't really, I didn't really think in those terms. And I think a lot of kids didn't, I think that like the understanding, and again, this might've been just, this, this might be idiosyncratic or it might be whatever a group idiosyncrasy would be called for my, for my, uh, my, my suburbs culture. But it was like the worst kids are the narcs. Right. And then everyone sure. else, like, you know, you look at like kids dominate other kids, but it's like constantly, like there's a constant hierarchical thing happening. Um, that's, you know, sort of has to do with, you know, the, you know, interest in girls. Um, but largely has to do with like, just like wanting to hit, <laughs> and like I don't know, and not playing sports, maybe maybe that's what sports is for. But uh, I think my fascination with it, um, especially now, is like th- there seems to be like a religion on bullies in America now, which is like you know it's there, there's like the sort of there's an Old Testament one, which is the bullies are bad, and it's evolved into a New Testament one where it's like it's like you said, it's like oh the bullies they were bullied too, and like I guess my feeling is. I think I'm, uh, I came out okay. Like I'm kind of a dick, but like, but I'm mostly (laughs) a, a, a good person. And, and I think I was, like I said, I was bullied and I bullied and most of the kids I knew that was the story. I think anyone could have claimed, uh, victimhood or aggressorhood at any given point. It depended. This is how, this is how at least boys acted. And I think the, the girls did too, not so much with physical intimidation, but like, that's how shit got sorted out in junior high. You know, I don't, I don't actually think it was all that bad. Like it sucked at the time, a lot of times, Mm -hmm. but I, you know, I feel like a lot of childhood just sucks. You're small. Like Mm -hmm. you don't have any money. Like you have to listen to what people tell you to do. Like it just sucks. And so that, that whole thing is like when, when you get older and you realize it's not, that's not a cool way to be. And that's not how, uh, you know, mature people act or whatever, like life actually kind of opens up and becomes lovely. I, you know, again, this is obviously not universal and there's some kids that are bullied miserably and, you know, awful things happen, but it's, it, there, there seems to be some relationship to me, um, between the, the sort of stress that got put on how evil bullies were. Um, and like, you know, later in, Time, like in the 2000s, I'm just making up the time, but much, you know, when I was an adult and that kids who were getting bullied, like were killing themselves at like 11, like this just, right. it seemed like there became a thing where it's like, you know, schools instituted zero tolerance for violence policy, right? That happened like right after I got out of junior high, like this year, I would have been kicked out a thousand times. And so would everyone I know if there was a zero tolerance policy, but then like, um, the zero tolerance policy comes in. And it's later that the kids start killing themselves, and they're they're not they're not getting physically bullied. They're getting cyber bullied, or they're getting called a name, mm-hmm. and they're they're being made to feel like they're they're they like the world is supposed to be really kind and soft on them, and like that's pretty in a way. Like it would be nice if the world was like that. I think. Like I'm not like you know I'm not trying to romanticize the ugliness of the world, but I think there's just the world's not like that, and so. So what I'm saying is you get rid of violence and now suddenly the equivalent of violence, there's still some psychological equivalent and that's someone calling you fat or like, you know, calling you whatever name. And now you're humiliated as if you had just lost a fight, which is a much bigger thing, which was probably happening far less frequently. 
and you're humiliated at that level and they say something worse and you know you're, you're hanging yourself in your closet um that's uh i don't know i probably sound like a crazy person but that that's how it that's how i don't, it, that's how I don't it think looks, you sound crazy at all there is something uh to be said about and and i think this is one of the major major themes of of the instructions is like uh almost replacing that kind of bully or or existing concurrently to it is like the kind of bureaucratic bully that exists as like brodsky or the people in the cage and that's a bullying that is like the arrangement yeah it's it's it's, yeah. it's not a violence yeah. that exists to uh you know, give kid give a kid a black eye or make them feel bad, but it's it's literally a violence that exists to like take opportunity away from people and put them in circumstances where their lives are going to be shit, right? So like that seems much much more dangerous than just like getting shoved on a playground or something like that. But those well, people yeah. are yeah no no it's it's yeah I think but the, the only the only the only sort of thing I would I would point out is like it's not that's not it's not a violence it's it's a domination. And like, and that right. can be worse than violence. I think that's what I think. One of the things with the instructions that I was looser on than um, maybe like most writers at the time, because of this sort of this, these these thoughts on violence and what we're supposed to think about violence is like, you know, violence. Like, I, I'm not like a fan of real life violence. I don't love it in film or whatever, but but it's not it's not like I think we should go out and kick each other's asses and that's how men are men or some shit like that. Mm -hmm. But like, I actually don't think that a punch in the face, which I've received is as bad as being, you know, for example, like in the cage program, <laughs> like right. it's like you're, you're, because the thing, the thing that really sucks is being, you know, is being humiliated and dominated and like taking a punch in the face, like maybe you get a cool black eye, <laughs> you know, it depends on your age. Maybe also <laughs> you hit someone back in the face. Maybe you're like, as I was like, that actually doesn't hurt nearly as bad as getting punched in the kidney, which is interesting. Like there's all, you know, like there's, there's, but, but it's, it's sudden and it happens and like, it can actually be managed in, in, in real time in a variety of dignified ways. Uh, potentially you can learn how to handle it. If you, if you start crying next time, don't cry. But if you're just stuck in a cage, like if you're stuck in a locked classroom, um, and you have some dude with a hook on his hand, which doesn't matter, but you know, you have some guy who's just because he's bigger than you and he's, he's employed by the school. He gets to basically own you for six hours and just like, like, you know, micromanage where you're turning your head. That is hell. Like, that's like, that's a lot worse than taking a punch in the face. Like any, any day of the week to, to me, I think, so, so I guess what I'm saying is like, I think that one of the things, and maybe it's in, it's indicated by the way you, you know you described it, is like that that bureaucratic thing. It's actually not violence. Um, violence is better. Like it's what mm. it is is just domination, um, and violence can be used for domination, and that's the ugliest shit in the world. But that's not a thing that we really you know see that much in this country. You don't, you know, like it, you know, I've seen the wire, you know, bubbles gets dominated violently. Um, but like this, you know, most, most cases, most suburban kids, that's, that's not the kind of dominance that's happening. And, uh, it I don't think it really ever was. You're, you're, uh, calling me to task on, on the use of the word violence there, I think brings me to something about, uh, Mount Chicago that really 
interested me, made me uncomfortable when I was reading it, uh, made me think uh, uh, through some of my own thoughts on something, which I, I, I talked about in the in the episode where we're talking about it. But there is that chapter, which is essentially uh, it's the, the calendar chapter, which is essentially mm-hmm. like a satire on ideas of uh, social justice or uh, uh, the different ways that we claim victimhood and things like that. And when mm-hmm. I was reading that, I was thinking these are the kinds of jokes that I make with my friends and I do mm-hmm. make fun of this kind of thing specifically, but mm-hmm. when I'm reading it in this context and it's from someone who I don't personally know and I don't know all of the intent behind, I feel uncomfortable with that. And I think that that's yeah. like a really interesting place to put, to put literature and like, mm-hmm. I don't know what the question is here, but like what, how do you feel about that sort of thing? Like, well, I would say that's, that's good. like i i I mean i i'm like i I think that's the thing is like like, i i think you know especially like when there's because that's you know that's supposed to be you know comical right um Mm -hmm, and also you you know like but but you know i think that you know things that are comedy are usually about um things that are that are funny things that make me laugh at least are usually like I'm made by the comedian or by the speaker, by the writer to sort of witness myself taking pleasure in something I'm not supposed to take pleasure in. And like, and there's like this, this nice, like sort of opening of the brain somehow, like some, some like dual track thing where like on one hand, you're like, I'm, I'm getting joy out of, out of hearing this or reading this. And on the other hand, it's not like I believe in this, like the two things can be happening at the same time. And in fact, Mm -hmm. like, when a thing is is really funny for me, it's like I'm. It's it usually comes out of like some sort of like next level type of momentary discomfort, and then I'm like, yeah, no, like the you know not being able to laugh about something um, is the is what gives that thing its uh, rhetorical powers, what gives that thing its political power, I should say, um, and uh, yeah, so so I don't know, man. I mean, I think that you know right now we're in this. Obviously, it's as I'm, <laughs> everyone's talking about it we're in a time where like people are really really watching what they're saying which is so doesn't resemble um how i grew up and it's and it's and it's different um largely for me in my experience of the world because the way i relate to people on the whole is like like say on the whole but 90 percent is like ooh, making jokes like I, I i hang out with friends i like uh, my wife we just fuck around and make jokes like I don't, I don't understand how people communicate on other levels, really, and in any deep way. Um, and now it's become a thing where uh, you hang out with people, um, and the conversation is like uh, often about politics. And it's like this mm. was definitely something that didn't used to be. It's like so it's either overtly about politics or it's a sort of silent, just polite conversation. So, so I think that I think all of that has something to do. Um, with maybe why that section would be uh, uncomfortable for, for someone. And I mean, hopefully, like, you know, there's some level of paradox or irony in there. Um, for sure. Ironical for sure. paradox in, the, in that chapter, right? Because um, without, you know, blowing anything, I mean, the cause is this fellow after is trying to raise money for somebody who is the most likely political candidate to help the very people that are sort of making after feel like shit. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And he's very deliberately going about this. But yeah, did, does that answer your, your question? Well, I think, I, I, don't know. I, I, think, I think it does also, but you, you address the paradox, I think later on in the book when after is on acid and he's uh, 
confronting uh, the the idea that he may have upset Armin by making a genocide joke, right? Oh, and, like, Glad, Gladman's like, on acid, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gladman, yeah. sorry, Gla- Gladman, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so part of Gladman is like, fuck this guy, and then part of Gladman yeah. is like, but I like if i really hurt him then i then i do regret saying that thing but also fuck this guy but also if i really hurt him and he's going back and forth right. and like right i think that's the way that most people probably are right we yeah. have the, we have this sort of paradoxical yes. instinct to both insult and to uh to not want to hurt people right and i mean i yeah i, I think that well but i guess i guess the thing is like i i, I don't I don't know that I have like an impulse to insult anybody. I have an ins- I have an mm-hmm. impulse to make jokes, and like right, my right. like that's that's definitely uh, impulsive, like that's the right word for it. Um, but I also I, I mean like I said I don't really I I am bored by people who don't make me laugh. I don't I don't really hang out with people who don't make me laugh. I, I kind of refuse to. Well, yeah. Like, on I mean, principle. why would you? Like, not on principle. Right. Just like, like, really, like, I don't want to. Like, it's like, wow, the life is short, man. Like, yeah, your friends should not be like eating your vegetables. It's like they're that your right, friends are your right. junk food. Yeah, like if my, you know, and I, I'm not trying to say that if my, I have a friend who's in crisis or they're, you know, they're they're just sad because you know someone broke their heart, something like that. Like, I fuck off, make me laugh. I like, I don't mean that, mm. but like, um, <laughs> but but actually, like most of my friends. Uh, I, I, when they are in crisis or their heart has been broken, they're fucking funny about it. And like, sure. that's, that's that, like, I just, I don't really, I think that that's a really good, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I just, I would like, I would like the entire world to be like that, except maybe for the people who sort of run shit. Um, they can, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe they have to be serious all the time, but like average person I meet on the street, I have no understanding of why, they would potentially seek to be offended rather than laugh at something. I'm not that way. And I actually don't think most people are. I just think it's, there's a, there's a growing chorus of them sort of online and it's maybe actually only like 15,000 of them. Something that I think about is like, if, if our, anyone's group texts with their closest friends were made public, uh, completely Mm. context free of those people's relationship, those people's backgrounds, I think all of those people would be uh, taken to task publicly because like context is such an important part of who we, who we are and how we relate to one another and how we make those jokes. So yeah, it's like all that stuff is incredibly important. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I I think also the two, the thing is like, you know, um, I, I fully agree with that. Like, I think context is everything. It's sort of like the premise of Mount Chicago in a way. Like, but it's like, mm-hmm. I think like if you picture some like horrible, like, you know, racist, anti-Semite, homophobe, transphobe dude and his buddies who are all the same ists and obes and whatever, like making jokes, the jokes just, the jokes aren't funny. There, there's, and that maybe that's part, maybe that's partly because someone who actually believes hateful shit isn't capable of being funny about it um and i think laughter you know is is such a bizarre beautiful human thing and i think it's getting coded lately um or has been you know for for maybe more more than just like lately for a few years um as being a way to dominate people like if you if you laugh at something you're you're that's a that's a form of domination that's a form of oppression and I think that's completely off. I think that's that's just it's it's almost the opposite. 
Yeah. So I don't. So I guess I guess what I'm saying is like if I hear a funny anti-Semitic joke, because I know a bunch, like, mm-hmm. and I'm you know I'm a Jewish guy, like you know if I see an anti-Semite walking down the street, he's you know shouting, you know he's threatening me, something like this, you know if it's, right. you know when I was a kid, people like that, like they weren't funny, like that shit's they're, they're not funny. They're not saying funny things, um, mm-hmm. and I don't imagine that they're capable of saying funny things about Jews. Like, I, I think that they're they're a bit psychotic when it comes to Jews, and they probably can't craft a joke because it's so serious to them. But I know a lot of funny anti-Semitic jokes. <laughs> like, and I think most Jews do. Like, I think that's part that's that's all sort of essential to the Jewish culture. I think it's also pretty essential to African American culture to know a lot of uh pretty funny African American jokes. Like sure. I, and maybe to every single ethnicity in the United States. But I think if it's funny, it's probably not coming from a hater, is what I'm saying. Maybe there's exceptions. I I, I really can't think of any though. Yeah, I I think that's I think that's all fair. And I think that's like kind of evidenced in in two different ways in in the novels. It's about like context and community, kind of like if you look from afar. Like the 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 mistake I made the first time reading the instructions was thinking that Gurian was like innocent. That I was like, oh, these are a bunch of like. 13 year olds or whatever that they, they can't possibly do anything like they're just a bunch of kids like what could they possibly do and then like when the violence starts it's like holy shit i did not really see that coming even though yeah. the entire time you telegraph exactly what's going to happen like this is these are kids yeah. capable of great violence but i think mm-hmm. it's like from afar what like gurian's anger and his actions seem maybe crazy or maybe unjustified but when you're up close it's like no these kids are oppressed in a way and they have they have banded together because they have found the other people that are exactly in their situation. And it's the context that makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that reading, man. Well, actually, so here, here's an actual question that I think, you you know, I, I might've picked up on some kind of an answer based on just how you were talking about your childhood, but like with the instructions, the, the sort of me feeling not really prepared for the podcast was because the, the roster of characters is so broad and, I mean, with a thousand pages, of course, there's a lot of time to, like, develop people, but how do you go about forming the foundation of a novel that's going to span a thousand pages and have, like, 40 or 50 or 60, like, kind of important characters? Like, what is what does the process for that look like? I honestly, like, I, I say it, and I feel like no one no one believes me, but I, write re- I really write sentence to sentence, and I definitely have never sat down and thought this will, this thing I'm going to start will be this length. I've sort of, I've, I've sat down and written a couple sentences and thought this will be a short story rather than a novel, but um, there's no world in which I, I decided um, when I was, you know, 25 that I would, like, write a thousand-page book. That, that would kill me. So it's like, I and I definitely didn't think, and there will be so many characters. It was just like, <laughs> go forward and build the thing. Um, and then it, it, you know, and it kept getting longer. And part of it, I think, like, I remember I showed um, my thesis advisor, like, uh, the first, I mean, the first, the, the beginning of the instruction, the very beginning was sim- very similar to what it turned out to be. But like, the sort of first 300 pages of the instructions as it is, I think were like 40 pages or something like that kind of amount of stuff sort of happened. And it was like, I showed it maybe maybe I'm exaggerating a little, but my, my advisor was like, I don't know who this guy is. I don't know who that guy is. And I was like, okay, like I actually do. And I, you know, like, like I wrote them, I was like, I, I kind of, I kind of know who they are. Like I can, I can, I, I know, you know, 
what what whatever two lines of dialogue they spoke signified for me sort of opened up something for me and i said oh you know i know a lot of these characters actually like they've all said these words and i i kind of know who they are and so i can i can write about them and then it became this thing where now i have all these characters and like they're sort of in motion and um I don't know, man. The thing was like, it took me forever. <laughs> it took me nine years. So it's like, it's real hard to talk about, you know, like what the process was other than like when it was going in the right direction, it felt like it, like it, it, it felt good. And it felt like uh, the sentences were popping right. And the characters and their backstories and their fates or whatever were coalescing in such a way that to me was satisfying and, you know, would hold up to multiple reads, which was really, really important to me at the time. That's still pretty important to me. Um, but at the time, it was sort of foremost in my mind. It was like, if I'm going to say something about this character that is, you know, going to take a little while, not only does it have to be at least kind of entertaining while it's happening, or very entertaining, hopefully, but, you know, kind of entertaining, but like, it has to be that, you know, it, it pays out not just when you get to the end of the book, but it pays out like doubly when you read the book again, if you read the book again, which everyone thinks I'm it's crazy. Interesting you say that because, you know, at the yeah. end of the instructions, Gurian talks about like the, the process of rereading, which kind of fucks me up because he's like, you know, you can't really ever reread a thing because once you know the ending, everything works its way back. And I'm like, this is like breaking my brain. Cause, like, I feel like as I'm reading it for the first time, I'm like, I know that I need to reread this. <laughs> and it feels like Gurian's saying yeah. that like, I can't or I shouldn't because like I'm going to know that like everything leads to Benji's death and like it's going to work its way back from that and like it, I was just like I, is he telling me not to reread it so the fact uh, that yeah, no, I thought he's saying the opposite you... <laughs> okay okay that's interesting because like, it, ma- it made me want to yeah no 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 I think I think Gorian's case is is the opposite maybe I made it badly I you know but like to me like what what, what he's talking about is basically that um he like Gorian's claim you know, throughout is that he's basically as a, as a, as a scripture writer, he is perfect. His scripture is perfect. Mm -hmm. And that I think that the argument is really like, if you're not, if something's not quite computing, then basically, yeah, when you get to the end and you read the end, like then when you go back, there's going to be a lot of stuff that Gorian did and said, and that the other characters did and said that either probably, hopefully didn't just wash over you, but that actually are sort of, the opposite of what they were the first time right like the Berman Aleph stuff that doesn't feel important until it all of a sudden becomes the most important thing right and then like and even stuff like the opening of them just in the pool where it's like you know when you I think when you first read the line like uh Benji Nakam who thought we should waterboard each other me and him and Vince support this like ah these kids they're fucking around and then they do this thing and they have like this you know semi-clever conversation in the pool or whatever but this is like uh that's kind of like, that's the thesis on Benji Nakamuka at the end, which which that first line was written last. It was literally the the that the the opening four pages I wrote last in the book, and like it was like yeah, oh, that's Benji Nakamuka thought you should waterboard each other. Like that's the story. It, of Benji it is Nakamuka. a hell of a way to start a narrative because I'm just like oh my god, like okay, so these are <laughs> this is what we're dealing with. All right, that's a conversation that we've had a lot, which is like the this idea of the books that you need to reread the most, whether that they be. Infinite Jest or the Recognitions or the Instructions, like these books are all a thousand pages and incredibly difficult and take up a lot of time. The 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 good part about that is that hopefully they're all a, like a pleasure to read, but also it's yeah. like you know that the people 
reading them are real like book nerds right like to to for, for lack of a better term like people aren't spending 40 hours reading uh whatever book and then going back and rereading it all over again unless they're like really dedicated to literature so on the one side you have really yeah. dedicated readers who are really want to get it right and on the other side just from a like treacherous financial standpoint you are 100 closing the door to a whole bunch of other people right is that something that like comes into your mind at all or is that like a totally no. poisonous way to think I mean, I don't know if it's totally poisonous. It doesn't come into my mind. Like, like I think, and I, I, I somewhat, I sort of disagree with what you, what you started out by saying, which mm -hmm. is because I, I actually think that um, the books that I reread the most are not necessarily long. Like, I've re I've reread Infinite Jest quite a few times, but I think mm -hmm. I've read White Noise um, and Blood Meridian, uh, which are much shorter, which are you know very reasonable length, which especially White Noise and Franny and Zooey. I mean, like everything by Salinger. And Vonnegut like so much more than, than 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 these other books, and I think they really they they really bear up. I think just like all books that I truly love, um, mm -hmm. they end up really bearing up under rereading, like and bearing out more than they did the first time. Usually up through the third or fourth time. Okay, yeah, I think I think that's I think that's fair. Um, that actually brings me to to a, a question, uh, which is that in the author insert that happens after the really long chapter of of uh after after's anecdotes you talk you talk about the process of 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 writing mount chicago after uh yeah. the difficult selling of of bubblegum and you you yeah, write about yeah. um about how like you had wanted to write something that was that was small um mm -hmm. which you did not really do yeah no it's just a part of you, right? This 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 stylistic idea of like building out characters through observations that are not necessarily plot driven, like like the best cookies in Chicago or um, any of the various things that 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 we go through in Mount Chicago that gets us to really know these characters, but doesn't quote unquote forward the plot. Do you find that that's like a compulsion to, to, to move toward that style because of any any particular reason that's like short circuiting you from writing like a small book? No. And I mean, I think honestly, I do like like I, I think that the like I said, I, I sort of trust the sentences like I, I kind of trust mm -hmm. where things are going like because I'm, I'm very I, I delete I, like seriously like 90 something percent of what I write every day. So mm -hmm. it's like. I like if I'm going like like when I'm going forward, I'm I'm just interested. I'm totally interested in forward momentum. I just don't think that forward momentum actually does um, hinge on plot. I think like plot is part of it. I think plot's great. Sure. I love plot, and I could I could you know make some you know <laughs> argument about how everything in Mount Chicago is plot, but I'm not gonna because it's silly. And you know I, I I think I understand what you mean, but I would say that what I end up doing. Um, by going sense to sense, what, 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 just talk more about like books that I, I love maybe is like, I am interested in being when I'm reading, I'm interested in being sort of just pleased and surprised all the time. And the more you read, the harder it is to surprise you. Right. Mm -hmm, like sure. you, you're, you're, and so, so I think that, that what happens is that, um, when I read a book that moves in ways that I don't expect it to, and I'm digging each move i i i am totally it's like it's downhill for me in a in, right in the ski slope way it's just fucking easy it's like easy going i'm like man this person is this yeah. this 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 book is just speaking to me 
And so I think that's kind of maybe why it goes where it goes. Whereas with the instructions, which is sort of wears its plot a little more on its face, I think, I think it's against, especially the second time, because like, like you said, right. like minor incidental things become, you know, big things. Even there, like, like that has, that has quite a bit more overt plot in as much as plot is going to be, um, you know, ha- one signifier of a plot move is someone gets punched, <laughs> right? Like this is a very mm-hmm. easy thing, like so, like an uprise in violence, like stakes change, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that maybe what it is in this long roundabout answer I'm giving is that what I end up getting concerned with, whether it's plotty or not at any given point is, is a sense of conflict, is a sense of there being something at stake. And so with character, like when one is thinking about characters, and I really don't box these things in when I'm writing, and that's why I'm sort of babbling so much. Like, <laughs> what 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 moves forward, what gets me to move forward as both a reader and a writer is that I feel like something is now at stake. I'm saying a thing that um, complexifies matters for the reader, um, which means raises the stakes. Is like, you thought you understood... And you did understand quite a bit, but maybe there's actually this other thing that that undermines your your understanding. I think that I think a way to describe that, and like something a way that Bob has described it on the podcast before, is that there's a little bit of like a magic trick that you kind of pull mm-hmm. that we we refer to it as an Owen Meany magic trick because there's like, have you read a prayer for Owen Meany? I have not. I've not. Oh well, then I won't spoil the magic trick. Then <laughs> we recommend that book, but. All right. There's okay. a thing that like that literature is able to do, especially like longer narratives where like it sets up something and you almost forget about it. And then like hundreds of pages later, it's like, oh, that's why it happened in a sure, way that like doesn't sure, really sure. work in a movie. Because like even if in a movie, you know, something's happened in the beginning, it's not more than like two, two and a half hours later where you're like, oh, I get that. Right. Like it's still kind of you know, to some extent fresh in your mind. But with literature, sure. when you're reading like hundreds and hundreds of pages, it's a different thing. And so yes. we talked a little bit about in Mount Chicago, like it's clear that the bird Gogol is important because he's on the cover. You know, there are, or she's, I'm so sorry. She, I'm, I'm pulling an after here. <laughs> she is on the cover and uh, uh, she, you know, there's, there's sections from her perspective, but it's not until the end when you realize, oh, by finding after Gladden's able to finally give himself closure and take his own life. And it's like, the, Bob described it again as a magic trick that like, it's that moment where you don't really recognize the importance or like the specific significance of a thing the first time through. Yeah. But then like the rereading, you're like, oh, here's all the Google things and where she's fitting into the narrative and how it's going to pay off. So like, I guess it's, it's kind of that kind of thing, right? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I like what you just said. It makes that, that, that is, I mean, there's, there's to me, there's, there's a line pretty early on that, I mean, I think Gladman out and out says, he'd kill himself if it wasn't that he had to take care of Gogol. Right. Right. Like, I think it's said like, like, so, so, um, and maybe we just, you know, s- spoil the shit out of the book for everyone, but no, I we think that, well, pe- when people listen, the, the, they, they, I, I think generally like we have a, a standing thing where like people that are listening to this podcast have read the book. Hopefully. Good, good, good. I think a thing that really interests me in, uh, and, and, and I think this is part of like also my smaller book question, uh, like mm-hmm. something that really interests me is number one, the relationship between uh, uh, Gladman and Daphne and also the relationship between Gurian's parents, because I feel like instinctively reading them that maybe as a writer, you're having the most fun writing those kinds of relationships, like the sort of flirtatious couple fight 
uh, back hmm. and forth um, where where you're showing that these people really, really love each other. And like hmm. uh, when I was reading both of those books, I was just like, I want more of this all the time. And of course, nice. in, uh, in 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 Mount Chicago, I mean, that's not possible for a lot of reasons. Um, hmm. Is is that accurate? Is that like it, it really feels like you enjoy writing that that stuff the most? I mean, it's as I'm like some kind of cheesy hippie, which is like the opposite of what I am. But yeah, I really enjoy figuring out how to make people um, appear as though they love each other as much as I want to believe they love each other. If that makes sense. Like, I mean, and it's not necessarily just you know couples, it's friends, it's, mm-hmm. it's whatever. Like, this is to me, like I think that. I think this comes a lot from um, how kind of worshipful I am of J.D. Salinger. Like, I think this is the thing that he always did best. Um, I mean, he does everything best, like did everything best. Uh, but but the is that you have a lot of characters that the uh, that love one another and that the narrator, in the case of the, the glass books, uh, that the narrator loves. And the love, like, comes through... And it's rarely, I mean, it's never, it's never cheese ball. It's, it's like mm-hmm. maybe like if you're sort of feeling up dykish or something, you can claim that it's sentimental in certain places. Um, but I don't even buy that. Like, I, I think there's a, there, there's a, when, when you have like two characters who love one another, when you read about them, I think you as a reader sort of develop a love for them uh, or something like it, whatever love is when you're reading about made up things that are just made of words. Does, does that make sense? It does. Yeah. It, uh, and, and like I, I said, Daphne and, and, and Gladman and Gurian's parents, but it's also obviously there with, between uh, uh, Gurian and Benji, which like mm-hmm. to me feels uh, like you mentioned Salinger, but the, but the Gurian Benji relationship to me is really, really reflective of the uh, Hal and Pemulus relationship in mm-hmm. Infinite Jest, yeah. because it's like all about loyalty. And it's all about like, also yeah. like, is this person actually good for the other person? It feels like right. maybe not. It feels like maybe he's leading him down the wrong path, but you still kind of like, uh, yeah. in, in my mind, in, in reading it, and this is personal, yeah. like total personal opinion, like Nakamuk is the star of the instructions, the way that Pemulus is the yeah. star of Infinite Jest yeah. in certain ways. Yeah. And and the reason why we can access that is because of Gurian's love for Benji or because of Hal's love for, for Pemulus, right? I mean, I think so. I, I think um, I, I, I like I really like that reading. I think, I think that's that's I, that, that's fascinating. I mean, although I would say with Benji and, and Pemulus both, I think of them they're the star in as much as like Mercutio is the star of Romeo and Juliet. Like, mm-hmm. I think they're, they're my favorite parts of both books. Probably. I mean, I don't know. I like Vinci, but like, <laughs> um, sure. but like, well, yeah, but, well you yeah, see yourself but, as Vinci. You, you talk about that in Mount Chicago, right? That Vinci. Is uh, yeah. I got, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, but it's, uh, it's fiction. Um, <laughs> like, but yeah, no, Vinci is, yeah. I mean, like, um, Vinci's, I'm not like, not, but, but yeah, I think that, I think that, you have the the most charismatic character in both cases. In, in, you have Pemulus and 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 you have uh, you have Nakamuk. And I think that also in White Noise, similarly, I think Murray is extremely extremely um, uh, charismatic. And his relationship, like every time Murray Murray is it Murray Suskind? It's Murray Suskind, right? Mm-hmm. His last name. Yeah. Every time he he comes on the page, you're just like talk. You're like, dude, talk talk about the barn, right, do anything yeah. like. like it's just it's the best and it's like he's not one of the protagonists like so um but i do think i think that there is there is a dynamic between the protagonist and any of these whether it's mercutio and romeo or pemulus and hal or 
uh, Murray and um, and uh, wow, I'm 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 really suffered in the heat. I can't remember the name of the the guy in White Noise, the main guy in White Noise. I I can't. I've I've read that book twice, and I can't recall. Well, actually, what the, what the character we, I, I can save you here because I want I want to sort of pivot to White Noise because White Noise is one of those books yeah. that I mentioned earlier that was on the list of yeah. things that Bob had me read, and then I reread it yeah. again, and now it's being adapted by Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig into yeah. a thing starring Adam Driver, right? And like. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we do in, in the episodes that we record is we try to cast the novels that we just read with actors. And, like, our last season was so difficult because, like, we did mostly, you know, school modules. And, like, we don't know actors who are, like, 13 to 18 because, like, who, who knows <laughs> right. kids, right? But, like, right, right. when you're writing these, are you writing with – I know you write sentence to sentence, like you said a couple times. But, like, are you writing with – actors or like real people in mind like in terms of casting i think bob had mentioned that like is correct me if i'm wrong that you would idealized or thought of jaden smith as gurian that 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 is from the uh the rumpus book chat yeah (laughs) i mean at the time that might have made some sense yeah right because he's a million years old now not a million but he's like he's he's a million years old he's also sort of like a you know i don't know i'm not gonna speak ill about jaden but he (laughs) he became a little bit I, i he wasn't he wasn't exactly a celebrity yet Right. Like he was yeah. the, he was a celebrity child, like son of right. famous people. It's it's and, and I always kind of feel weird asking this question to authors. But like in terms of when you're writing, do you think at all about it ever being adapted? Do you think your novels could be adapted? And if so, do you have people in mind who could play, especially for the first, you know, while Mount Chicago is fresh out, like people who could maybe play Gladman or Aptor? Okay, well, I would say, uh, so So that was like three questions. So, okay, so the first, when I'm writing, I absolutely do not think about movies. And if I do I think, think about movies, right, it's, it's I think about how to write the book so that it cannot be properly filmed. Because I have this old school thing about that, where, I love not because not I'm hostile toward movies, I love movies. But because I feel like if something... I feel like movies can do things that books can't do and books can do a lot more things that movies can't do. Mm-hmm. And to make the thing deliberately adaptable is gross to me, but it's beyond that. It's like, it's, it's a sort of failure. Um, that said, uh, I obviously anything can be adapted. I have ideas about how to adapt infinite jest for a TV show that I think are good, but it wouldn't be as good as it. infinite jest. Like, yeah, <laughs> right. right. Cause everyone's dying for me to write a, you know, script of, of a novel that everyone decided <laughs> is not cool anymore. Um, Just call it finite jest. It's a totally different thing. Finite jest. Yeah, yeah. Finite seriousness. Um, finite uh, self harm. I, I don't know. But 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 like, <laughs> but but yeah. So 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 no. I do not. I don't. I don't do that. I don't. I don't think about. And I, and I don't think about who would play them. And then after the fact, like I do think of. I do think anything's filmable. I I uh, I don't think any. Like when I say that. You say, I think anything is adaptable. Um, it would be really, sure. it would have to be a shit novel for it to translate perfectly to film. Um, that would be a very bizarre thing. Um, unless maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe Werner Herzog would do it because he writes the film and the novel and the two are playing off each other. I haven't read Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I thought was a fantastic movie. Maybe it's a great book too because it's working with the thing, but that's not even, you know, I, yeah, I don't know. So, so, that said, I would I would love to see someone make a movie or a show of my stuff. Um, if for no other reason than you know I could use the money, um, sure. <laughs> but like, but I think it could be good. No, I think there's I think that 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 stuff can happen. But I I really don't think about uh, who would play. I, th- I think great actors 
um, are largely um, able to adjust and adapt. So it's like Adam Driver playing. Um, its name is Jack Gladney, by the way. That's that's his name. Yes. Just yeah. 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 Okay. Playing p- playing Jack Gladney. That doesn't fail to make sense to me. It's definitely not what I would predict. Uh, Greta Gerwig playing Babette. I haven't seen what how what they did with her like in terms yeah. of style because there's this very 80s thing but i can kind of actually imagine greta gerwig with the big perm that babette has the sort of big blonde i don't know if it's a perm mm-hmm. that's why i picture sort of like puffy curly hair and like that maybe she sort of looks like how i imagine babette i mean when you're imagining people speaking monologues from from white noise it it's a little weird to begin with it's going to be it's either going to be a very strange awesome film or it's going to be something i can't imagine uh or it's going to be shit uh there's always that possibility i definitely didn't imagine don Cheadle playing murray and that's who's playing murray and i think don Cheadle is hilarious um he's i don't think they're going to have him play murray as a jewish guy um mm. but that's okay it's an adaptation I don't know. I again, like I, you know, I can't predict. So, so as for yeah, and with my own work, I definitely like. There's actors I like. There's like actors with faces that I'm like that face is interesting and seems very adjustable, uh, and so could maybe play Aptor or Gladman. But uh, I, I haven't thought about it till just till you just asked. Well, because I think you know we we talk about it a lot because I think you know we're both big movie and TV guys. I mean, probably at least in terms of proportionally to books me more so than bob because bob's also much more of a reader than i am but yeah. i think the thing that we've we've noticed in either just watching movies that have been adapted or trying to adapt things that like it's an ability or it's it's when people are trying to be too loyal to the novel that it, it fails like if, if you're able to mm-hmm. sort of pivot it into a thing that like doesn't quite resemble the novel but is based on the novel it almost right. works better so like almost uh, the I best version agree. of your thousand page thing might be something that like only focuses on like a fraction like it might it might not be anything that's like the instructions but like it kind of embodies the same ethos or something yeah or not a movie or like a you know limited series kind of thing right like that's what i'm saying is like it's like it's so so yeah and you know i'm not i also don't believe that i would have much of a sense of whether anything that anyone else made of my work was actually good you know Mm, like i think kubrick's lolita is amazing and i love nabokov's lolita more than I love Kubrick's Lolita, but Nabokov hated Kubrick's Lolita. And right. I think that, that that to me is nuts because that's arguably one of the best adaptations of a novel that has been made to me. Well, like, I, I don't know. Kubrick had the same thing with The Shining, right? Like Kubrick made a, a really great movie out of an okay yeah. book. And, and, yeah, a book and I couldn't Stephen get King was like, yeah. yeah, Stephen King was like, fuck that. And just like, what? <laughs> oh, I didn't oh. know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, oh, yeah, I, no, he I went, didn't. He made that. his own version. Yeah, he he hates the really? Kubrick version of it. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. And he made really? his own. I don't know if he wrote it or directed it, but he made another. There's another version of Shining that Stephen King like made that is apparently bad with a uh, with a uh, Stephen Weber from Wings as as Jack. You're Torrance. shitting me, man. No, Are you serious? You gotta, yeah, go see it. It's it's. Uh... I'm not going to see it. That's crazy. First of all, <laughs> anybody remaking a Kubrick movie is one of the dumbest ideas I've ever heard in my life. Like yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. like remaking a Tarantino movie unless you're Tarantino. Like yeah, if Kubrick news. remade a Kubrick movie, I would see it. Like you know, well, like, um, I guess but you have to, dead, to put yourself in the mindset of like the the cocaine-addled brain of Stephen King in the '80s, right? Like, <laughs> no, I can do this better than yeah. the best director that's ever lived. I mean, that's that's bad shit, man. That's crazy. Like, <laughs> and, like that's crazy, especially because it's like you know, not not to speak ill of Stephen King, but he's not Nabokov. Like, it's like Nabokov. Right. Yeah, yeah. 
you can't you can't translate Lolita to the screen. You can, however, and like that's actually a weird one. You know, given all the stuff you you were just saying, Joey, and all the all my denials about picturing um, my own characters, which I, I, st- I still hold. Actually, one of the things I saw Lolita after I read the book, and I really like instantly when i saw it it was like i'd never i don't think i'd ever seen james mason in a film before but i must have but I, mm-hmm. like or maybe i'd seen a clip without knowing i'd seen it but humbert's voice and james mason's voice to my mind they're the same like it was like james mason just sounded like i'm talking like on a sonic level not just like the way that uh not just the fact that he's speaking humbert's lines like he sounded like Humbert Humbert, and and it blew my mind. I was, I, I, I it was, it was crazy. Here's like a, a a weird aside, but um, I maybe this is something that you're you're not you know about, maybe not. Uh, this weekend uh, is the um, uh, editor of of the instructions. Eli Horowitz has his first movie out in theaters this weekend. Oh, is that this week? I I haven't talked to him in a few weeks. He, you know, man, he's, he's such a humble guy. I love that guy. He's such a good dude. He that's the one with Winona Ryder. Yeah, yeah. Oh, nice, man. Oh, I had. I think it's also on demand, so I don't even think you have to go out. I think you can just like rent it from home, I believe. Beautiful. I'm going to see it. That's great. I'm really happy to hear that. Yeah, that guy's amazing. That kind of leads to a question that I hadn't prepared for, but like, what was the the editing process like with a book that big with with that guy who I assume is a genius, kind of? Yeah, yeah. He's brilliant, man. He's he's a brilliant guy. Um, It was cool, man. It was really, it was, it was pretty rigorous. It was like. I sent him because I think I sent the book in. And I knew it needed cutting, but like I showed it to him. I'd, I'd worked with him on stories for the for the um, quarterly, and I really liked working with them. They were like I'd published other stories before. I had I had I've had pretty universally positive experiences with editors, but Eli is like this sort of like for me like he he kind of knew how to talk to me like um, mm-hmm. in a way that was more kind of uh, we could have a more active conversation. Like he, he, like he knew very clearly what he wanted and he could kind of tell what I wanted. And when he couldn't, I could tell him and then we would fight, you know, in a friendly way. And then, you know, if he won, I was happy. And if uh, I won, I was happy. And it was, uh, uh, but so anyway, when I said it to him, I think the manuscript was, I don't know. It was, I I want to, I don't want to exaggerate. I think it was like 300 pages longer. And I think that I cut like about 400 pages and added 300 pages. Like, so it was like, it was a real, it was a really long, heavy editing process. And I, I don't think I, that I've encountered anyone else that I could have done that with. I do. I, my, my editor for the last two books was fantastic, but it was, I was also a more, you know, mature writer or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I was, I was turning those books in in better shape and um, he was, he was a bit more hands off, um, but uh, still very attentive. But yeah, no, the instructions was, I think it was 18 months I was revising it um, after, wow. you know, yeah. And, and it was like, you know, it was a, it was, I was very happy to do it because I felt like Eli really got it. He read the book, he read the manuscript in like 10 days and like really was like, he got it and was positive about it. Um, he wanted me, one of the first things he told me, I, he thought I should do was cut away this sort of armature I'd put around it, which was exactly the thing that I was like, I have to figure out how to cut away this armature. And I was like, this guy fucking gets it. And like, like I said, I'd worked with him on a couple of stories, which for me is very intense too. And, um, and it was great. And it was so, yeah, it was a fantastic process. Are you, uh, uh, as far as short stories and, and that stuff, are you still like, how actively do you write short stories as opposed to the, the novels? And are you, uh, I know you, you've had a couple in the New Yorker and stuff, but are you mm-hmm. putting a collection together or anything like that? 
I don't know. I don't like to talk about exactly what I'm doing. I that, like just, Fair and enough. that's not like you know, not like uh, no, 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 someone's going to steal I, my ideas. It just always sounds stupid when I, you know, when and I, I always, it. I always undermine myself. Yeah, but um, but I write. I basically this is the short of it is I, I would on any day I write whatever I feel like writing. Like that's the old. This is the one place that I'm like I can do whatever the fuck I want. There's like no, there's not a lot of like uh career aspirational type thoughts that go with um yeah my stuff. Word. I mean, after the thing's done, there sure are obviously, but like. Um, yeah, when I'm work, the thing, whatever I'm working on any morning is, is, is on a good day, exactly what I want to be working on. And when it's a bad day, um, I don't do that thing the next day, you know? Uh, I have, I have one more question that it takes us back to, to Mount Chicago and, sure. uh, something like a much, much earlier conversation. And I also feel like we should talk about Gogol a little bit, who I, I, I think is the best bird in all of literature. Um, best bird in all and, the world, uh, man. Seems like a lot of a lot of fun to hang out with, yeah. But there is, and and Gogol plays into it because it is the the again. I hate to, I, I know we we keep returning to this idea of autobiography versus versus fiction, and I totally like, I totally buy the the whole. Um, it's all fiction, right? Even even the the introduction, I, I can I can look at that and go as fiction. I don't need to in any way accept that you uh, ran into Mayor Daly on the streets while uh, and and believe that you're having an acid flashback or anything like that i'm willing like i think all of that as fiction is is great but like i'm interested in the the meta trick of using that autobiography to like call attention to the things that are similar to your life just to dismiss it because when i was when i was reading and i was thinking like okay so levin has this bird is real and uh this this daphne has these similarities to to uh his wife that he mentioned, and he's got all of these things that are that that track with his life. Like when I was reading that, then the book itself read as this kind of like, at least in part, like six hundred page panic attack about a guy afraid of losing all these people that he loves, yeah, and it sure. legitimately made me super sad. So like <laughs> when when you're, <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, I, yeah. 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 Sad is I'm after sad. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think that's I think that's fair. And I'm sad yeah. is an yeah. is an emotion that I'm happy yeah. to have while reading. Yeah. Um yeah. and I I you know, to pull back the curtain on fiction feels like a strange a, sh- a strange thing to ask because it's like it's like asking a magician how they do the, how they do the magic trick. But like are you calling attention to the nonfiction elements uh as a means of of like invoking the real world as opposed to uh us reading these characters as being fiction the panic attack part i don't think that that i was quite i think that's that's like uh that's not exactly i wasn't trying to evoke a panic attack it wasn't me having a panic but it was definitely me thinking through what loss would be like um for me like Gladman's life is sort of the nightmare of this kind of loss because like, to me, it's like a no brainer. You kill yourself. Like if for me, <laughs> right. like if, if you're like, it's, just, I have no, I have no, I don't judge suicides. Like I, I, you know, I, I did, I was a social worker. Like, I feel like this is a, this is usually not a, it's not, it's not often a decision to commit suicide that is made from a logical mindset. This is actually, and it's, and it's still, I'm okay with it. Like, but uh, this is a logical kind of thing. This is I'm totally okay with it. This is like what what would be the point? I got no my 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 wife who I love is gone. My sisters, my family, um, and but then the nightmare is I'm fucked because I have to take care of the bird. 
Yeah. So, so yeah. So it was sort of thinking through that. And I think that um, to me, uh, the idea of, you know, having, having sort of actors, this kind of foil who nothing like that happens to him. Um, and who has, who's a fairly like kind of wildly sort of successful type person, mm -hmm. um, who I think has a good heart, um, and who resembles Gladman, you know, uh, in a lot of ways and doesn't in a lot of others, uh, that the two of them meeting, um, I think it gives Gladman probably some hope, uh, as well as, uh, as well as the reader. That, and then Gladman to call it hope is not right, but I think it gives the reader some hope that Gladman's not going to kill himself. And I think it maybe gives Gladman some sense of like, I think that what, what transpires between them in the kitchen is, is mostly authentic. Um, it's not entirely manipulative. I think that Gladman actually likes the guy. Like it's it's also true that Apter is uniquely sympathetic to the idea of suicide because of his uh, like I guess parallel experience to you as a social worker, yeah. right? Like he talks about that. There's that large section where he's referring to uh, the things that we feel, uh, whether it be empathy or sympathy for uh, among suicides, whereas people are like, "Oh, isn't it so sad that this person killed themselves?" And Apter's like, "The stuff before they killed themselves is the stuff that's that's sad. what's said, yeah." Yeah. Yeah. So, exactly. so after is after is in a unique position to uh, understand and sympathize with Gladman's decision at the once yes. we get to the end of the book. That's kind of the stuff that when when you say that you could make the argument for all of everything within the the entire novel as a part of plotting, like that mm -hmm. it is all scaffolding leading us to that emotional decision, right? And and the way that these characters yeah. interplay toward the end. Yes, I think so. Yeah. I hope so. We have, we have a we have a sort of a couple questions to ask you that we can sort of you know wrap up every interview with. But I have one more question. We kind of have a hunch for an for what the answer might be. And if you if you think this is kind of uh, going to spoil the magic trick, you don't have to answer. But um, I have a very numbers oriented brain, and mm -hmm. so when I was reading Matt Chicago, having just come off reading the instructions twice, and the yeah. terrestrial anomaly happens on the same calendar date as the Gurionic War, I was like, mm -hmm. oh. So November 17th is like a day. What's the significance there? I mean, again, I, we sort of have a hunch maybe, but, you know, these two sort of the most important event in both of these stories takes place on the same calendar date. Like what was the uh, what yeah. was the thinking there? Well, I mean, it's also, you know, it's just not to geek out on my own stuff. But there's, yeah, there's also the, in, in Bubblegum, there's a there's a day that's the I think it's the, the release day of independence. There's no significance to it other than I love the sound of eleven seventeen, and oh. it's like and 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 with with the instructions, like it was a date. I was looking for a date. Um, it had to be in November. Like by the time I got to the point where I was gonna, you know, be where I realized the book was gonna be structured according to you know actual dates, I was looking for a date that and the Jewish calendar would pretty much would never be a holiday. I, I feel like this is something that you may know, or or I may be getting this wrong. But Hebrews eleven seventeen is uh, uh, Abraham offering Isaac up to God. You know what? I actually might know that too. I might have. I might have known <laughs> <Okay>. that. <too. laughs> like I like, but that's the thing. You know what happens? What happens when I write when I when I write a book? Like honestly, like the instructions. I was super super fascinated with the Jewish religion, and the mm -hmm. second I finished it, and you know, I was this sort of like god questioning you know whatever like i like i i you know i really i really admire the religion as far as religions go and like really when i was done with it i was like wow i don't believe in god 
And like, um, I think that uh, with bubblegum, I'm not sure what the equivalent to that was. Maybe it was some strong stance about the internet. With Mount Chicago, I sort of feel like I was trying to convince myself not to be a behaviorist anymore. And uh, oh, that's interesting. I don't, I don't know if I really succeeded though. Um, but yeah, no, I think I, 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 I exactly, yeah. So, so anyway, all, all that to say that um, with the 1117 thing, it's the sort of thing like I. I, pro- I, I probably did know it and like well, mm-hmm. I, I kind of like that it's also just like an arbitrary it just sounds nice because you know Bob and I watch yeah. we talk about it here a lot uh, like on the X-Files I don't know if you ever watched the X-Files but like the like every time you see a clock it's always like 10-13 because like that's the creator's birthday and she's like oh like yeah. maybe just a date that means something to him or whatever yeah. but like right. the fact that it either was from Hebrews or just it's just a date that sounds cool and it's never a holiday it's just almost it makes it more important by making it less important yeah I think yeah yeah and I mean also I mean like the book like honestly like Originally, the the novel like was titled "The Gorionic War," and then that didn't like Eli convinced me that wasn't a good title, and I think he was right. And and uh, like I like it, but it's like you have to know the book to, for it to be to feel right. And then like really, I was it was we were both. I was real psyched. I came up with eleven seventeen as the title, and like I was like that's going to be it. But then the problem I realized within like three hours was I was like, now I just now it's this big fat book that's coming out a couple of years after twenty six sixty six, which is another big fat book. Oh yeah, that I really sure. love. So 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 I not eleven seventeen, and so then yeah, so then I was like ah, the instructions, you know, and it makes sense, you know, Torah means instruction, you know, blah blah blah. But yeah, I think I, yeah, I wanted it. I I, I wanted to give a thing kind of its own significance it's a similar thing with the you know the names of my characters i think like i tend to want them you know gorian aside the rest of that book is a bunch of characters with like potentially real names that aren't really real type names they're not names that really exist in the world as far as i know like i don't think there's anyone actually named nakamu even though there should be like <laughs> i don't know like i don't think there's a portite on earth um but i want there to be like i don't know it seems reasonable we we kind of touched on what might be part of the answers to this from earlier, but every time we talk to an author, we because the, the the podcast is framed around different seasons. Like we had the instructions fell in our uh, campus module, and this even though it doesn't really, it's just sort of a bonus because like we got to talk to you, which is cool. It kind of doesn't. It's not out of place in an internet module because like there's such a like the YouTube stuff with Gladman's like alternate. I was trying to think of his alternate character name, but like it still fits in there. I think that's just kind of like the writing a narrative that fits in the world but because our podcast is framed around themes for each season whenever we talk to an Mm -hmm. author we ask if people really love the instructions or mount chicago what other things would you recommend they read either things that you love or maybe inspired you or that are just similar or like if you were sort of crafting a module around those two works like what would you recommend people read i mean i would say any of the books that that are listed in those books pretty much sure because like we start we started talking about that stuff in terms of music, but in terms of books, I think we I'm not sure we ever got to it. But those are those are I'm pretty much listing like Gladman's list that is is pretty autobiographical. Gladman the 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 author's after lists as as his having read because Gladman recommended them. Those are pretty much who I'd recommend. Um, I think I'd rather tell you some you know like less common books that are probably that are probably sure. included in that list that I think are that are wonderful books. Um, that I've read, you know, kind of recently or something. So like there's Europeana by Patrick Rudnick, um, which is this short, fast, like just lightning book, um, that is 
I don't I don't even know how to describe it. It's it's, it's a history of 20th century Europe, um, <laughs> but it's written as though Kurt Vonnegut, but Czech were writing that history. It's fucking amazing. Okay. It's it's like right out the gate. Um, it's a Dalky archive book. There's another Dalky book uh, that I read last summer that I've been recommending to everyone. And I, I recommend these like not just strongly because I love them, but because they actually like they win me friends. Like there's no one, nobody. I've recommended books and people tell me that shit sucked. This book and, <laughs> and this other one are like there. There's I, I've never met a person who didn't love these books. So that I've recommended to. So Europeana, and then um, there's a book called Magnetic Fields by a guy named Ron Lowenson, which I just like sort of. And both these books, they they had this very nice thing where I sort of just found them at a used bookstore. They had a Dalky archive spine, and I picked them up and I started reading them. I was like, holy shit! And uh, Ron Lowenson, Magnetic Fields is almost indescribable. It's it's like it's a thing and and I think, you know, if you're Delillo fans, it's really amazing because the book's from 1983, so it's before white noise. There's portions in it that you're like, how does this written before white noise? And you know that it's like it was published too late for Delillo to have really read it and decided to write white noise. It's just this there is and it's and it's not because of really anything thematic so much as just on the the level of feeling. Um, there's very few books that feel like a DeLillo novel, like a, like a DeLillo at his height novel. This is actually one of them. And it's, and it's also in a lot of ways, a lot weirder. There's like, and if you try to describe it, it's like, it, it's, it, the book makes total sense. It's, it completely speaks to the reader the way a DeLillo novel does, but trying to describe it, it just sounds like a patchwork of things. And it doesn't feel that way. Like the best part of the book in, in my memory of having only read it once last summer is like there's like a 10 page description of a toy train set that is the most engaging amazing thing that that, that really i've read in a couple of years i feel like that's the best sales pitch for a book that we've gotten on this podcast <laughs> so far like i want to like go out and read that today oh you should man no, no that that both of those both of those books are just fucking mind blowers they're like they're like so they do the thing to me the thing that i want most i don't want to read like i want a book to be complicated as hell but i don't want it to be i don't want it to be blocking me like, I don't want it, mm -hmm. I don't want it to be telling me like, you have to work. Like, that's not, mm -hmm. that's not what I want. Like, I don't want to like sift through stuff. Like I want to be spoken to as directly as possible and, and have it bear up like a universe. And, and both of these, the, both of those books absolutely do that. And then I would say like, in terms of like, uh, you know, kind of other books that I've been trying to, you know, getting people to, and, uh, you know, another, another one I should say that, uh, well, I just, I won't qualify them because this is going along. The three, the the sort of the the three books, three and we'll call we'll call them five books, six books. I'm gonna give you six more books. <laughs> two, two by each of these authors. Two by each of these authors because they're 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 all awesome. Um, but so there's Adam Ehrlich Sachs. Have you guys read him? No. Okay, so he has a collection called Inherited Disorders. Fucking amazing, and like you can just read. Um, he published there there. It's it's like a bunch of really short pieces that are all about fathers and sons that are fall down hilarious and you're like and 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 brilliant like brilliant 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 um and if you read the new yorker thing online you'll buy the book like it's you'll just you'll just buy it like there's no question and it's not even the, they're not even the best ones in the book um it's like 99 stories that are all wow. like they're amazing right. yeah i'm seeing like really you just it's you go to the new yorker for free read, look up adam or sacks you're there um, and then he also he put out a novel a couple of years ago that was so good that I actually I wrote to the guy, which is something I, I've done like maybe like three times ever. 
Um, and uh, it's called uh, The Organs of Sense. Describing that will, I will just embarrass the hell out of myself, but maybe if you, if you enjoyed <laughs> the magnetic fields description, uh, maybe, maybe it's good. That is uh, a book about Leibniz, <laughs> okay? Um, before he develops calculus, he's like 19 years old, and he goes and looks for a blind astrologer. Okay. Is, yeah, I know sounds like fuck sounds all like about Leibniz. <laughs> I'm not astrologer, astronomer. I know fuck all about astronomy, and I know fuck all about Leibniz. I know nothing about anything before 1950. This book's amazing. <laughs> this is like this is like it's it's fucking great. It's like it's just it's again hilarious and really moving and like like just he's this this guy. This is this is a young writer. I'm really really excited about this guy. So then I I, I got to say, and not not just because she's my wife. Camille Bordas's novel "How to Behave in a Crowd" is. I'm I'm currently reading it. I'm about halfway it's through. Fucking great, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm 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 enjoying um, it a lot. What if he said no? It's terrible. <laughs> I wouldn't. Do yeah, it, I know he but... couldn't. He couldn't. Yeah, that was a, that was a silly spot to put you in. But no, but I I I, <laughs> I think that book is. I, I I know it's always it's it's a little awkward because like I really do think I think Camille is the is the genius of our time. And granted, she's my wife. Like so that's so so there's like and so it's so it's so it sucks that um my uh my authority on that is a little other people say it too that's all i'm trying to say and like i think <laughs> no, but it's I think, like i think, you know, I think is, going back yeah, not to it, not to derail you but going back to the, you know the thing about friends like you you were you probably drawn her because of that talent right like it's there's something that like mm-hmm. you have friends that make you laugh like you're drawn to people who like inspire you and you think are great so like yeah, yeah you kind of lose credibility but like there's there's a reason for it yeah yeah no she's she's brilliant i mean it's like you know, I, I don't, not to, you know, she's my wife. So it's, it's weird to, you know, it's weird to talk, you know, brag about her. But like, is she listening this is to this right now? Does she have you she's on the She's not. She, no, no, no. And she, she won't, I don't think she will listen to it. She, she's not, she does, she doesn't do that. Like, but like, and she's actually, she's not in the room. She, I'm, I got to go meet her for her, her and a friend of ours for a drink in about 10 minutes. But like, but no, but she like, so she, her first two novels, she published in French. She's French. She's, she's Parisian. She published her first two novels in French when the first one, when she was like 19. Okay. And like, like one prize, yeah. like she, she's like, she, you know, published from the, you know, Gallimard, like the, the, the FSG of France or whatever, you know, we got married, she moved to the States and like, you know, she learned English from like movies, you know, she speaks mm-hmm. all these languages, it's, you know, brilliant. And, and, and then she started like writing fiction in English and she wrote how to be in a crowd. And then she wrote, she started writing short stories, um, which you know, French people don't give a shit about short stories. She ba- and she's she's extremely well read, but she had read like very few short stories in her life. And the first short story she published, she was in the New Yorker. The first short story she wrote was in the New Yorker, and so was like the second, third, fourth, and fifth and sixth. <laughs> like she's like she's a, she she's a she's the I don't know whatever I I, I stop now now it's, it's it's getting embarrassing. Probably <laughs> she can't hear me. I feel bad. Um, but so okay, so Camille, um, Bordas. And then you've got Christian Tabordo, who I've forever just is, is, is I've, I've known him a quite a long time. Um, and he's certainly someone who, you know, I met him in grad school um, and I've been reading him since then. And that is someone who before I, I mean, Christian's a little bit prickly. I love Christian. He's, he is my one of my best friends now. Uh, probably my best friend. I whatever. I just feel like a junior high school person <laughs> ranking friends. He's a I'm very, very close with Christian, but he's prickly. And, you know, I think that we wouldn't have been as close if I didn't freak out for his work as immediately and fully as I did. Like, I, I like, mm-hmm. you know, he, and he just keeps getting better. Um, and so his last two books, his newest one is called The Apology. It's a novel. 
his previous one's a collection of stories called Ghost Engine. Fucking killer. Um, and then we have another prickly character. Uh, um, this, these are my, these are the last ones. And it's uh, Jesse Ball, um, who I probably shouldn't promote his, his new book um, because it's coming out the same day as mine. But you should buy them both. <laughs> um, but his new book is fantastic. It's called uh, Auto Portrait. And uh, have you guys read Auto Portrait by Edouard LeVay? Have you read this book? No. Mm-mm. Oh, so there's another. Okay, so you should read Auto Portrait by Edouard LeVay. Jesse's book is like sort of like a cover of it. It's like a, you know, without, it's not, it's it's like, it, and very acknowledged. It's obviously, it's the same title. Sure. Um, and uh, it's just, it's just basically a string of anecdotes about Jesse Ball. And it's amazing. And I think, like, I saw people marketing it as a memoir. It's a fucking novel. Um, and it's great. Um, and the auto portrait by Edward Levay is great. And then for Jesse Wise, his last book, uh, Divers Game, I think um, that's his. Uh, that's that's a more straightforwardly a novel. And as much as Jesse's work can be said to be straightforward, and that that I think was uh, that's that's his best. That's his best novel. Uh, that's awesome. And uh, yeah, that's like some weird dystopic. Uh, again, yeah. I'm See, this is why I can't summarize anything. I really like that you guys didn't make me summarize my book. I hate, I hate, I hate having. <laughs> yeah. And then one other question, not that he needs any more publicity, but you bring him up in both the things. Do you have a favorite DeLillo novel? And also, I guess, Philip Roth. I'm more, I'm more familiar with DeLillo than Philip Roth, but do yeah. you have a favorite of either, each of those guys? Um, with DeLillo, it's it's definitely like a tie between White Noise and Endzone. Um, yeah. Like, and it's like right now I'm reading Endzone. I'm like, maybe this is better than White Noise. But again, this is like ranking your friends. Like, he's, he's a yeah. DeLillo is fucking DeLillo. Like, I'll read, I'll read. You know, you know, Delillo authored cereal box. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, it's uh, he. I, I love reading Delillo. Um, but I think that for me, the 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 book that really sold me the first time I read White Noise, I was I was too young or something, and I was like, eh. But the first time I read Endzone, which was like not that long after that, blown away. And then I went back to White Noise, and, and I was like, oh no, this is a towering towering achievement, etc. Um, Roth, uh, Operation Shylock is uh, hey, that's mine novel. too. Yeah, it's that's, just that, that's the Roth I go yeah. to. I, I I'm I'm good with that. Yeah, and I've re- I've read I think I've I've read everything by him except for the Nixon play thing, and mm-hmm. uh, like our gang it's called. And uh, yeah, yeah. and I never read Patrick. No, not Patrimony. I did read Patrimony. I never read Deception, the phone conversation one. Uh, apart uh, from that, good. I've read everything by him and most of it a couple three times. It's good. I have it you at know? home. I feel like I'm sort of saving it because I that's the last novel. I'm not going to read our gang. No well, you're kind of like green in that way, it. right? Like you don't want to read it all. You want to you want to make sure that you have one left over. Yes, yes. That's what I'm doing with Sabbath's Theater. I have not read Sabbath's Theater. I'm, I'm keeping that yeah. in a little, uh, you know, it's in my car right now, and it's like on a rainy day. I'm Break gonna, in case I'm, of emergency? Yeah, I'm going to take that one out. I tell you something, man. I tell you something. I, I, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but I feel like there's, across the board, there's like, there's kind of like, there's 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 a diff, there's two different types of Roth fanatics, and there's mm-hmm. like the one that it's, it's uh, that they're, fa- I mean, there's, you know, because no one who, Portnoy's is no Roth fanatics favorite Roth, right. but like yeah. the, there's the Operation Shylock Roth fanatics, and then the America Trilogy Roth fanatics. Like that, that mm-hmm. that's the top. The Operation Shylock Roth fanatics, such as myself uh, and you, eh, not so big on Savas Theater. Find Savas Theater. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's his favorite book, so you feel sort of stupid by it about yeah, it. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but uh, and it's a totally awesome book. I mean, it's fucking Roth. It's Roth. It's Roth. It's right. Roth. Peak power Roth. Um. But uh, it's not. It's it's no Operation Shylock that one. But I, I'm the All same right. way. I, I do, I'm doing it with Cesar Ira. Um, so oh, every yeah. time I, I, I'm keeping one Cesar Ira book, which is Seamstress in the Wind. I don't know why, because maybe because it's like the least appealing title of all of his titles that are translated. <laughs> um, that's the one I haven't read. 
and I'm like holding that for some reason because he has they're like they will not finish publishing him before I die. So it's like I don't know why, but um, but yeah, I keep I I, I hold that one out. That that guy's process is fucking insane, right? Doesn't he just insane. like he he like hand writes at a cafe and then never edits anything or something like that? That's what he says. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, like, mean, sounds like bullshit. Like, it doesn't. It's not even that it sounds like bullshit. It's like there is not the only person I think that I know who I feel like actually describes how they work accurately with no bullshit mm-hmm. is George Saunders, and I think that I think that everyone else. It's like, it's a question that, you know, it's like, everyone's full of shit on some level. And so Ira, maybe he does, like, it might be true. Like, I'm not, I'm not calling him a liar. I'm just saying, like, anytime I see a writer writing about their process, I, I'm actually not uninterested in it. I just take it with, like, massive, massive grain of salt. Yeah. Um, I know I'm sort of full of shit. Like, mm-hmm. and I think I'm less full of shit than most people um, when right. it comes to that. Yeah, because it's like, what are you supposed to say? It's it's very, you know, there's like a, it's supposed to sound extremely romantic, which it usually, you know, for most writers, I know it actually is kind of a romantic, beautiful process, but it doesn't sound that way, you know, like. It's labor. It's, it's sitting down and doing the work. It's sitting down and working. And it's like, there's there's joy in that. But yeah, describing joy in work, you just, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to do. It's it's maybe, uh, it's maybe impossible to bring across. And it's, and it's not really ultimately what, what people want to hear. Uh, I don't think, uh, it's not, it's not, it's, uh, what they want to hear is they, you got inspired by, you know, the look in the eyes of, uh, you know, whoever. And, um, sure. then you were real sweaty and you stayed up all night yeah. and wrote a thing. You, you, you caught, you caught a parrot's eye across the room and, and were inspired. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's the whole thing. And you know, like that, that's, and you know, e- even that kind of stuff, I think when people say that shit, it's gotta be partly true. Like, you know, like, but yeah, there's no, yeah, I don't know. So, uh, so Ira's process, when I read about that, it gave me pause. Um, mm-hmm. and it actually prevented me from reading him for a while. And oh, cause I was like, if this is, yeah. Cause I, cause, cause that is a very romantic way to write. Right. I don't edit, you know, like I don't revise. <laughs> yeah. There's also the guy, you know, like, I don't want to toss the word around too much. He, he, he's, he's, he, like my wife is, is a genius. Um, and uh, he, uh, you know, uh, it's possible that he sits down and knocks a thing out that fast. Like, I don't know. I don't know how to write like him. I mean, no one does. No one knows how to write like anyone, but especially not him. Yeah, he's a, sing- he's a singular talent. Singular talent. Like, just, you know, he, uh, he, it appears he, like, read Borges and understood it in a way that, that other people couldn't and aspired to and then figured out how to do a newer thing. And, you know, then he is very self-effacing about it. Um, calls himself a footnote to Borges. Uh, and I think he's sort of joking too, which I kind of like, cause I think he thinks he's better than Borges. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I would agree with that. I might, I'd have to really think hey, about it. I don't know if I though. care to. Yeah, yeah. I like the idea that he's, that, that he's being sarcastic about mm-hmm. that. It's <laughs> that, nice. Anyways. Yes. Well, I got to go yes, drink anyways, with my wife and our friend. Yes, guys. please. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us for this very long interview. We really, truly appreciate it. Uh, both very psyched to talk to you. And I'm so glad that we got to read Mount Chicago early and that we both liked it and loved it and loved the instruction. So thank you again for joining us and for writing these great things. You guys, I had a great time talking to you. Um, and yeah, thanks for reading the books and, you know, thinking about them. Uh, it, it really, it was, it was really, it was really a pleasure. It was, I really enjoyed it. 
Um, I have a, a, f- a quick favor to ask. We haven't asked any author, but can you just say to the listeners, keep reading? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I say it every episode as a joke because Bob hates yeah. it, but I'm going to make everybody yeah, yeah, yeah. we talk no. to say it. So, like, it's, like a, it's like a radio bumper. Just say, keep reading. Uh, uh, no. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Levin, you're my favorite person. Thank you for doing that to Joey. If you're ever in New Jersey, drinks are on me. Uh, All right. I like it. I like it. Right. Ditto if you're in uh, Paris or, you know, fucking Gainesville, Florida. Uh, All right. Gain- yeah, we can make it in Gainesville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. All right, All right you guys. Great talking. Have a good one.